In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's 1977. Jim Henson has never made a film. And I'm going to show you a clip from what was then the most elaborate production he had ever undertaken. Beyond Sesame Street, whole nine yards, puppets galore. It's a story called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. It's about Ma and Emmett Otter. She lost her husband. He lost his daddy some time ago. They don't have much, but they have each other. The story is set at Christmas time. And because they can barely rub two pennies together, they wish they could get each other a gift, but they've got no means to it. And then they hear about a talent show, a town talent show. First prize, $50, which I guess in otter money is some $5,000, right? Big money. And they both have dreams of winning the talent show that they might have the money to get a gift for each other. Emmett, he's a musician. He plays in a jug band, but he's got no water jug. He's got no water basin. And the only water basin he's got is the one that his mother uses in order to make extra money to wash clothes for neighbors. Ma, she sings. She sings beautifully, but she doesn't have a dress to enter into a talent show. What means does she have to buy the material to sew a dress? The only thing they got is her husband's her former husband's or dead husband's tool chest that Emmett uses to, to make money to do odd jobs. And so they struggle. And it's sort of a twist on an O. Henry story. But what do they do? In that moment, they're forced with a choice. What do they want to risk? Here's a moment from that show. Dear Ma, I'll be gone all day. I'll explain about the wash tub when I see you late tonight. Love, Emmett. Dear Emmett, I'll be home late tonight, and I'll explain about the tool chest when I see you. Love, Ma. just put a hole in the wash tub. Her only means of income. She sells the tool chest. His only means of income. How will it resolve? I'm not going to tell you. It'll only cost you $3.99 on Prime. And the kids are going, where's the capes? Where's the CGI? Where's the bathroom humor? It's old school. But there is something to that. 
in that, their sacrifice, it's something that you and I might actually call beautiful. Even though we can't put our figure quite on why. Now here's a leap from Emmett Otter to a 19th century Russian novel by Dostoevsky in which one of the characters says, beauty will save the world. And from the moment that line was written, scholars and philosophers and everybody else in between have tried to understand what did he mean by saying beauty will save the world. And even if we knew what he meant, is that even true? You and I know what changes the world. Wealth, power, charisma, charm, access, information, all sorts of things. That'll change the world. What will save it? What will save it from some of the distortion, corruptions of all those things that change it? There's your answer. There's your question. We've been listening to the Gospel of Mark for several weeks now. And we've been asking ourselves each week, what does it mean to follow Jesus? If we don't know that, we don't know anything. But what we're going to listen to this morning in a passage from Mark chapter 14, I think is going to tell us that following him means we all have to grapple with the idea of knowing God as someone who is beautiful. And we're going to listen to a familiar passage, and in every direction we're going to look, we're going to see beauty. Beauty that I will contend to you is the beauty that will save the world. If only we embrace it. That's where we start. Hopefully that's where we'll end. I wonder if you would stand and let's listen to Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 3. Our central text for today is found in Mark 14, 3 through 9. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon, the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There was some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. The beauty that will save the world has everything to do with what it sees, how it sacrifices, how it serves, and what it spreads. So let's talk about, first of all, how it sees. Now, this text is not just some sort of moral fable. It has a context. There's a setting. Where are we? We're in Bethany. It's about two miles from Jerusalem. Where more specifically, we're in a home. That's great. Whose home? We're in the home of Simon. That's wonderful. But Mark sees fit to mention something else about Simon. Not just Simon, Simon the leper. Wow. How would you like to know that you've been associated with the disease that you've had all your life? Now, he's probably not suffering from leprosy anymore. He's been healed of it. For all we know, Jesus is the one 
who has healed him of it. But there's a point that Mark makes, and it's not just to distinguish Simon from other Simons. He's Simon the leper. If you know anything about Leviticus, you know there's a lot of chapters about how to deal with a broad-spectrum idea of skin diseases that were broadly defined under the the catch-all term leprosy. You had to diagnose it. There were treatments for it. There were quarantines associated with it, and there were thresholds for when that quarantine might be lifted. Sound familiar? But somehow, in the midst of trying to stop the spread, people who got sick got associated with that sickness, and revulsion followed them. It became part of their public reputation. And so even if you'd been healed of it, you might have been avoided. Even if the priest had come by and said, we're clean here, people might have said, I think I'm going to skip your house. And that thing got hung around you like an albatross around your neck. Shut out. Thought less of. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't avoid the lepers. He, he approaches them. He, he heals them. He doesn't steer clear of the sinners and the tax collectors. He sits with them. He chats them up. He eats with them. He reclines with them. That's what he does. And that, friends, was not just countercultural. That was beautiful. And that's where we get our first sighting of beauty here. The beauty that will save the world is a beauty that looks past the disgust to see the dignity that is present. It finds, it searches, it locates the dignity beyond and beneath everything that might cause disgust. About 10 years ago, I struck up an email conversation with an evolutionary biologist after I listened to him give a, a commencement address at a university in California. And at that commencement address, He's a, he's a primatologist. He works with primates. He, he goes you know, um, to Africa and he, and he studies gorillas. And if you watch one of his, his uh, documentaries on Netflix, you can see that he, he uses a, a blowgun to sedate the, the gorillas. <laughs> and they fall over and, and then they analyze. Everything's fine. No animals were hurt in the course of this discovery. But he, he studied that and he was always asking themselves, what set humanity apart? And in the course of that commencement address, he tried to answer that question. What makes humanity unique? And the ironic thing about his speech, and this is an, an avowed atheist who has every reason to believe that you don't have free will and there is no God above. Ironically, in the commencement address, he references two Christians to explain and exemplify what makes humanity unique. And one of those was a name you might have heard of. Her name was Sister Mary Jean Prejean. She's a nun. She works on death row. She's featured in that movie that had Sean Penn in it and Susan Sarandon called Dead Man Walking. And everybody would ask her, why? Why would you care and have compassion on those who are destined to die on death row? Why would you do it? And, and she put it this way. The less forgivable the sin, the more it must be forgiven. The less lovable the person, the more you must find the means to love them. And this biologist in this commencement address, referencing her, says, this is what makes humanity unique. The ability to believe something that is almost unbelievable. 
the idea that somebody, that everybody else had written off, that was a leper in spades in some other way, that you could find somehow the ability to love them. That's what makes humanity unique. That, friends, is seeing the dignity beyond what's behind the disgust. And, and that's not just unique about humanity. That's beautiful. And that's the first sighting of beauty we see. Kids, you go to school, and I'll bet your bottom dollar that there are people in your school that sit with no one, that fit nowhere in no group. That's just who they are. It's just how it's split out. That's the, that's the hand they've been dealt, or whatever it might be. And look, you sit in your groups, whatever those groups might be, and it would be totally normal and natural for you to sit in those groups and feel safe, even though there is somebody that's got nowhere to go and no one to sit with. But as normal and as natural and as safe as it may feel for you to sit in groups where you have a group, it ain't beautiful and it doesn't save. It doesn't rescue those who have no one. And I will tell you this, there may come a day when you will be the one whom no one will sit with, in whom you have no group. And I will tell you that anybody that has the courage and the compassion to come and sit with you and chat you up and care for you and and care in the very least about you, you won't know what to make of them. And you may not even have a word for what they're doing, but let me suggest to you one word that it might be, and that is what they're doing for you. That's beautiful. That's beauty that will save. That's beauty that will rescue. And that's the first sighting of it here. And we've just talked about the setting. What's beauty that will save the world? The one that looks past what is disgusting in order for you to find the dignity therein. Where's the second sighting? The second sighting is really the focal point of the whole moment. They're at Simon the leper's house. They're all chatting. They're all eating. And then, boom, up shows this woman without warning, without invitation, without explanation. She just shows up. And what does she do? She immediately, without warning, just pulls this thing out that would have caught everybody's attention as soon as they saw it. This jar. It's called an alabasteron. Perhaps made of alabaster. Very costly. As soon as you saw it, you knew, okay, that, now that's expensive. And in that moment, everybody's wondering, what is she going to do? Now, I will confess that when I'm watching television and the, the Oil of Olay commercials come on, the, the Revlon, and I kind of I turn my head like the RCA dog going, what, what is that? What are they talking? What is hyaluronic acid? That, that sounds dangerous. Like, I don't think I want that anywhere near me, right? I looked that up, if you wonder. But some of you know, because you're laughing, because you know what hyaluronic acid is, some of you know. You know what that is. You know the joy, the ecstasy of having skin that is soothed and and blemishes covered, and your skin exfoliated. Oh, I looked up all these words. You, all of that stuff, you know it. And you also know that you use it sparingly because it is primo expensive. This woman, she cracks open that jar. And when she cracks open, she knows, everybody goes, oh, because she knows you can't hold that stuff back. And she's not planning to. 
She's all in. She ain't going to keep any of this home. She's not going to take it home with her. And she anoints Jesus' head. She just dunks it on his head and anoints him as if he's a king. As if he's a priest. And everybody looks. And everybody's agog. Because they know that not only was that personally costly, expensive, but it was probably very dear to her. That's an heirloom probably. It might have been something her grandmother gave her. It might have been something that she was setting aside to give to her daughter on her wedding day. Who knows? It didn't matter. She gave it all to Jesus without warning, and we have no idea why. But whatever she's doing in that moment, it's it's for love, it's for honor, it's for gratitude, and she lays it all on him. And you would think that everybody in the room is starting to fall apart at what's happened, but you know what? There are people that are actually angry at her in the moment. More on that in a moment. They're scandalized. They're horrified because they know what that costs. They've been to the Macy's counter. They know what that cost. What that cost her was likely an annual wage. Imagine, do your own math for just a minute. Imagine how much you make in a year and imagine devoting the entirety of that to one person in one moment. You might be horrified too. They know what she could have done with that. They know that they could have sold that and given it to the poor. Look, I'm, I'm driving up at 240 on Friday on an errand and, and there's the homeless shelter that they raised two weeks ago, last week. And I had to ask the Lord, what, it, what could have been done? I don't know. But imagine what one annual year's salary could have done. I don't know. I don't have a clue. But they did. And in that moment, what does Jesus do? He says, back off. Step back away from her. Do you know what she's done? She has done a beautiful thing for me. Why was it beautiful? Surely it was costly. And it's the second picture of what we have as beauty that will save. It is the extravagance that is selfless. That's the sacrifice that is beautiful. And, but why is it beautiful? I'll tell you why. Do you know what kind of world you live in? You live in a quid pro quo world. And there's nothing new under the sun. It has always been this way. You scratch my back, I will scratch yours. I will give in order to get. That's your world. That's how you and I operate. Most investments have everything to do with what will I gain from it. And you know what? It's fine. You you make investments to get gain. If you only make investments in things that you never get a gain, you will never have any money to invest. I get it. It makes sense. But you know what turns heads? What turns heads are the investments that have absolutely no interest in the gain on the part of the one who's given. That's beautiful. And that's what we see in her. That's what she's doing. She's come for nothing. She's come only to express herself. And that's beauty that will save. If there's a film that you should watch at Christmas, it's the film from the 1980s. It's based on a, on a famous novel by Isaac Denison called Babette's Feast. And if you know that story, it's about a Parisian 
woman who's a chef who is fleeing the French-Prussian War. And she lands on the coast of Denmark and is immediately taken in by this very austere, fishing, Lutheran community. They take her in, they welcome her, they provide her shelter, they feed her, and as thanksgiving for their kindness to her, she says, I'm going to cook for you. And she does that for 20 years. And every year she mentions in passing that in Paris there's this lottery and you can buy a ticket and, and who knows what you get out of it. And she enters every year. Well, 20 years into her time among this Danish fishing community, she learns that she, she won the lottery. And she says, I, I, I'm going to go to Paris and collect my winnings. And, and so she does. And, and the community thinks they'll never see her again. Well, weeks pass. She shows back up at the coast and she's got boatloads of food. And she shows up and she begins to cook the most exquisite meal for the entirety of the community they have ever had. She feeds them. She delights in that. And the meal is finished. And they are all fat and happy. Well, I want to show you the scene from the aftermath of that moment in which she explains what just happened. Your Danish is probably not very good, neither is mine. That's where we have the subtitles. Oh, det var en meget god middag. De synes virkelig alle sammen, at det var en god middag. Jeg var en gang køkkenchef på Café Anglais. Vi var alle sammen huske denne aften, når du rejste tilbage til Paris. Jeg rejser ikke til Paris. Rejser du ikke til Paris? Jeg har ikke noget at vende til, Bertil. Alle de borte. Og jeg har ikke en penge. En penge? Jo, men det er 10.000 frank. Giver du det? 10.000 frank. En middag til tål og café anglais koster 10.000 frank. Kære Babette, du skulle da ikke have givet alt, hvad du ejede ud for vores skyld. Det var ikke alene for deres skyld. Bliver du altså fattig nu hele dit liv? En kunstner er aldrig fattig. Ten thousand francs on one meal for twelve people. She could have been set for a very long time, and she spent it all in one night, out of love but also out of an expression of her heart of art. And in that sacrifice, in that artistry, is beauty. And we are all arrested by that story. Some of you have been on the receiving end of that kind of generosity, that kind of sacrifice. Some of you have been the one to offer that kind of extravagance. And whether you received it or gave it, you were changed 
buy it. Because it was a beauty that saved. Saved you from a moment of reckoning if you were in need of it. But, but if you were the one who gave it, you were perhaps saved in a different way. Because friends, in our world, you are taught to want. And needs are invented for you. And you and I are easily seduced by everything that tells us you need this in order to be happy. One of you wrote me this morning about your encounter with those from another country, and that person, with all due respect, said of Westerners, you Westerners, you, you tend to define your wealth by what you accumulate, whereas we tend to define our wealth by what we give away. And that is the beauty that will save. A sacrifice of extravagance that is entirely selfless. And that is a liberation. But let's make sure that we don't miss what provides a little bit of the crisis in the moment. Yes, we've, we've heard about a beauty that, that sees the dignity beneath the disgust. That's, that's a tale as old as time, a song as old as rhyme. And, and we've also seen a, a beauty that saves through a, an expression of sacrifice that is extravagant and selfless. But there's a third element. And it all comes down to the emotional turmoil in the moment. Because you know what happened there, right? She's scolded. She is scolded by those who are present for what they term as an indefensible waste. And Jesus rebukes them. But let's make sure what he's rebuking them for and what he's not rebuking them for. He's not rebuking anybody that's angry because of their concern for the poor. His heart is for the poor. Friends, his mama with baby Jesus gestating in her when she sings what we know in the Magnificat, what does she sing? The Lord has filled the hungry with good things. Jesus' first sermon, three chapters later in Luke chapter 4, he says, I've come to preach good news to the poor. His heart is for the poor because his heart is for the Lord and the Lord's heart is for the poor. This moment, it takes place during the Passover. And during the Passover, it is the tradition of Israel to take up a special collection for the poor. Jesus is actually citing in this moment, Deuteronomy 15, he says from Deuteronomy 15, for there will never cease to be poor in the land and therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. So Jesus, he's not angry at them for being concerned for the poor. What he's doing in telling everybody that what she's done is an act of love for him that prepares him for the day of his burial. All he's doing is setting their concern for the poor in a much wider context, the context of his own death. All right, hang with me. This is more a meditation on this point than it is a strictly pulling out from the passage. For Jesus to link their concern for the poor to her own concern for his life, which will soon be snuffed out. You know what's beauty? You know what's beautiful about that moment and the context he's offering us? He's giving us the only true foundation for real compassion that's sustainable. There are all sorts of motivations that you and I might have for service 
for the poor. A ton of them. You know what one of them might be that we are afraid to admit? We like to be seen as compassionate people. You people that will ever, you know, put on your college resume, don't tell me that you're not tempted to list every single service activity that shows forth you're compassionate because you're a good-hearted person. You're trying to get access through that way. You like to be seen. Look, I did it too. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know what? When you give alms to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Because there's all sorts of fake motivations for being compassionate. But there's even ones that are more subtle that don't even work and aren't sustainable. Here's another one. If you think all your compassion will probably finally solve the problem, boy, have you set yourself up for cynicism and weariness and numbness. There's a wisdom to compassion, but there's no formula. Some days it'll work, and a lot of other days it won't. But it's not in vain. So the motivation to think, if I can just solve this problem, that's why I'll do it. That that will not be what motivates you. Another motivation that doesn't work is that you will always be met with gratitude from those who receive your compassion. Those of you who work in this domain know full well you are not there with gratitude. If you are making, look, it's okay to hope for it, and it's certainly a joy when you receive it, but if you have made the gratitude you receive be the motivation for your compassion, again, you will give up. And that's what's beautiful about what Jesus is doing here by setting their concern for the poor in the context of his death. He's offering to us the only sufficient motivation for compassion, and it's this. Not the outcomes, and not the gratitude, but for the mercy that we all have received from him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, lest we forget, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the motivation for compassion. That's the motivation for sacrifice. That's the motivation for extravagance. You make anything else, whether the outcome of it or your gratitude for it, it will fail in time. But if you let what he has done for you be what compels you, then you have the only true foundation for compassion. And that's beauty that will save How may I speak of this very practically? I would hope that you would help us make budget to make up for the disparity in our budget. But you know at the same time that we are asking your help to make budget, we are also asking you over and above what you would give to this body to help us give to Black Black Mountain's Children's Home this winter. Because that's the heart of Jesus. And if I might just say, wouldn't it be great if we could not only make budget and provide for them, but in good time to expand our footprint in being able to care for the vulnerable of this community. Why? Because that's great, because that's fitting, because that's the heart of Jesus, but because most of all, it's beautiful. And it's beauty that saves. And it's also beauty that preaches, and that's this last point I want to make. The beauty that will save is how you see. The beauty that will save is in the nature and the extravagance of your sacrifice. The beauty that will save is the form of service that has the only true foundation for compassion. 
But there is a beauty that saves and has everything to do with what you spread. Last verse, verse 9. What does he say? Truly I say to you, where the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What is true of light is true of art. It is meant to be on display. To hide it in the attic or store it away is contrary to its nature. Imagine if all that stuff out in the gallery, we hung black shrouds on it. Imagine if we told all the artists who entered into the jury art exhibition that, okay, you've put it up, all right, we've seen it, we've had our exhibition, quickly, come get your stuff, we don't want it anymore. It's absurd. It's meant to be seen. Its beauty is meant to be appreciated. What she has done is bringing attention to the worth of what he had done for her and to the worth of what he had done for you. And whatever she did is now going to be attached to what he is about to do. And we will give voice to that. That story is worth spreading. The story of the one who looked past what was disgusting in us in order to see the dignity. The one who expressed to us an extravagant sacrifice like no one else had. The one who showed us the only true foundation for compassion and what he has done for us. This is the one whose story we will tell. And that is a beauty that will save in the way that we speak of it through our words and our actions. So what's the take home for you? Where do you go from here? Look, I think this passage is making the simplest point to us, that everything that Jesus has done for us, that the most beautiful thing that you and I will ever point to is the extent to which Jesus gave everything for the sake of the world. And therefore, he is worthy of our best and our most. Period. Without qualification. So you're asking, what is my most and my best that I might give to him? I have no idea. I have some idea, but I will not be the Holy Spirit for you. So let me just show you one story, close to home, told by one of us that happened recently of someone who gave what they had what was for them in that moment their most, their best. So I was standing at the mission's donation table when a woman and her young son walked up to the table and the mother asked me, do you make change? Well, what kind of change do you need, I asked. Well, my son would like to give $2 and um, it's out of a five. So I looked in the basket and I said, well, we have $2. Just give me a moment, I'll see if we have another dollar. So I started counting up the coins in my purse. And just as I reached a dollar, um, the boy said to me, just give me $2. Are you sure I asked him? And he just nodded. So I said, thank you. And they left. Well, then it occurred to me, the widow's might. So I went and I found the mother and I said, would you give your son a message for me? And she went and found her son and she said, here, you, you tell him. So I said to him, I wanted to tell you that you gave more than anyone. 
because everyone else gave a small portion of what they had, but you gave more than half of all that you had. And Aud, the boy just nodded shyly and um, the mom and I just smiled. We, we all possess different things, talent, time, treasure, all those things. And in believing that we belong to him, we also believe that everything we have is available to him. But what we find is this. The woman in the story, what she gave, she didn't do that to gain anything from him. She did that out of thanksgiving for what she already had from him. And what is true of her and Emmett and Ma and Babette and this child is that whatever their expressions of generosity was, it wasn't to prove anything, it wasn't to impress anyone, it wasn't to gain anything. It was out of thanksgiving about what they already had. Friends, that's the gospel. You can't pay him back. You can't compensate him for what he's done. But he has made himself poor, such that by his poverty you have become rich. And receiving an inheritance that cannot be taken from you and which will never fade and which will always keep. That is a beauty that will save. Let's pray. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part, but what can I give him, give him my heart? The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Go in peace.